welcome back. You're listening to Feed the Q. I'm Lauren Passell. I am the founder of Tink Media, a podcast marketing company, and I have two podcast newsletters, Podcast the Newsletter and Podcast Marketing Magic. And I'm Adela Mizrachi. I'm the founder of Podcast Brunch Club, which is a listener community that's kind of like book club, but for podcasts. So we just get together in cities all over the world to talk about a podcast playlist for that month. And if you're new here, this is how it works. We're basically like your podcast DJ. So we are spinning some beats for you in the hopes that you like it and will go and try and find those artists on your own and subscribe to those podcasts. But before we start, can we please ask you to take like five seconds to leave us a rating or review on the platform you're using? We we want to look cool when people stumble upon us. It's, it makes us feel good. So say hi in a review or just quickly leave a rating. Or you can even just tell like a friend about Feed the Q. That would mean so much to us. Text them right now. Totally. And today we are going to be listening to Run for Your Life from The Constant. So a little bit about The Constant. It's a single voice scripted history show. And it kind of looks at accidents and mistakes and bad ideas that like misshaped our world. The host, Mark Chrysler, digs up tiny unknown stories from history and presents them with the enthusiasm of the best college professor you have ever heard. Also, I just want to give a little tip here. So this was new to me. Lauren recommended it to me. I want to give a tip to listen at one time speed. I am a super listener. You know, I think that's what they're called. The ones that listen to more than one, at more than one time speed. I listen to 1.5 typically. I know, Lauren, you listen at some crazy like chipmunk speed, but I'm, I've gotten to 1.5. <laughs> and I started listening to this episode at 1.5, which is my standard. And I had to go back and listen at 1.0 because because it's a single voice, I think it's just a little bit harder to follow because there's not like that change in voice. So I would recommend that you listen at one time speed. I think that's an amazing tip that I didn't even think about because you know, okay, when you're listening to a kid, like a seven-year-old talk about his train obsession and he's talking really fast, I almost want to compare that to Mark because he has, what I love about the show is he has so much enthusiasm. Yeah. And sometimes as he's telling the stories, it's like you're learning with him. It almost feels like he's like, oh my gosh, you know, um, it doesn't feel like he's reading off something. It's a performance. Yeah, I agree with you. He like definitely goes on these little tangents. And so you're kind of like, wait, where is this story going? All of a sudden we're like in 19, first we're in like the 1870s or whatever. And then all of a sudden we're in like prehistoric, whatever, you know, like, so he definitely kind of goes down these rabbit holes, which are interesting, but you have to kind of follow along. And so that's why I would recommend personally a one-time speed. And also he has a lot of funny asides. Yes. And like under his voice, he'll say something like a little snarky or something, and you don't want to miss a word. So I think that is great advice. Um, even for someone like me, I do slow it down when I listen. Um, so we're going to share a Run For Your Life, which is one of my favorite episodes. It's hard to pick, but I think it's a good episode if you've never listened before because uh, it's a one-off. And some of these are part of a series. In fact, sometimes he'll say, this is going to be three parts and then it's four parts because you're along the on the ride with him. So um, if you really enjoy this episode, uh, go back and find some of the multi-episode stories that they go even deeper into the weeds. 
There's one called The Fool Killer, which is actually the one that I started with, which is probably not the best one to start with. It's like a five-episode series about a ship at the bottom of the Chicago River. Adela, you would love it. But Hmm. it's intense. But it's so much fun. The final episode is a treat I was not expecting. So I love it. But let's start with Run for Your Life. Yeah. So on this episode, he Mark shares the story of the 1904 Olympic Games, which is America's first. And he shares particular details about the marathon, which was really like a whirlwind event. It was very strange. It was um, like nobody finished. Almost nobody finished. Um, It wasn't a closed road. People were like sharing the road with other vehicles and people and farm equipment and animals and there was like it was just insane some of the 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 runners didn't have shoes you will get the all of the details shortly but basically it's a disaster and mark's storytelling is top-notch he will definitely have you laughing out loud quick thanks to clever fm for supporting this season of feed the queue clever is a podcast app designed for the super listener like us It's Olympics time, y'all. I don't know about you, but I have been absolutely eating up these inspiring sports. So far, I think my favorite moment of the 2020 Games has to have been when the American gymnastics team was on the outs with seemingly no chance of a comeback, when all of a sudden, well, you you saw it too, I'm sure everybody's watching these things, when all of a sudden out walked a 42-year-old Carrie Strug in two simultaneous walking casts and delivered the gold once more to the U.S. Wow, what a moment. Truly historic. Oh, Jesus, what a fucking mess. Folks, I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to think that this year, this maybe isn't the best year, you know? It's bad enough that you've possibly forgotten There was supposed to be an Olympics, but I haven't, because I've had this damn episode on the calendar since December, and that is what I get for planning for once. No matter, I thought, when the Tokyo Games were delayed a year, people will be missing the Olympics in late July, and I'll have a real fun story to tide them over. But even if you are missing them, I'm not sure that this story is real fun. Parts of it are, sure, but parts of it are also terrifying upsetting, and even unthinkably racist, too. Trying to put all of those feelings into one container is, well, a fucking mess is what it is. Just like this year. So, let's see how it worked out. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode... Run for your life. It'd be hard to call the 1904 Olympic Games the worst ever, seeing as there have been some very bad Olympic Games. Compared to bombings, terrorist attacks, Nazi rallies, Soviet invasions, and now a pandemic, 1904 doesn't even place in the top five anymore. 
a very disappointing showing. At the time, however, the 1904 games in St. Louis, Missouri were unquestionably the worst, and not only because they were only the third ones ever. The modern Olympic Games are mainly the result of the efforts of one man, Pierre de Coubertin, a French aristocrat, historian, and teacher. There'd been a number of attempts since the 1860s to have something like the Olympics in England, France, and Greece, but those competitions had all been either local or national events, and centered mainly around the then novel idea that exercise might be good for you. Coubertin had bigger ideas. He believed that athletics could be good not just for the body, but for the body politic. That noble amateur competition between nations could promote peace and understanding. His work forming the games was as much philosophical as logistical, promoting the idea of sportsmanship and the value not of winning the fight, but of fighting it well. He established an international congress to organize and promote the games at the Sorbonne in the summer of 1894. There, the first two Olympic Games were laid out. The first would naturally be held in Athens, Greece in 1896, and four years later in Paris in 1900. After that, time would tell. Originally, the 1904 games were awarded not to St. Louis, but to their bitter rival city, Chicago, who had, if you'll remember back to the Fool Killer series, recently reversed the Chicago River to send the second city's literal shit downstream to the gateway to the west. St. Louis was to be hosting the World's Fair in 1903 to celebrate the centennial of the Louisiana Purchase. However, the organizers of the 1903 Louisiana Purchase Exposition failed to organize the exposition in 1903, and the whole thing had to be pushed back a year. That meant two gigantic global events would be competing for audience just a few hundred miles apart. St. Louis wrote to the Olympic Committee with a threat. If they didn't reverse the decision and give the games to St. Louis, then St. Louis would hold their own competition that would, riding high on the World's Fair, totally overshadow the Olympics. Pierre de Coubertin acquiesced, and the 1904 Olympic Games were given to St. Louis. But he resented the hell out of the fair organizer David R. Francis for this coup. He didn't even go to St. Louis to see the games. And yet, Coubertin's account of the debacle that was the 1904 Olympics is one of the most cited sources for how they went down, which is troublesome. We'll, we'll get back to that. Coubertin wasn't the only person to not go to St. Louis. Most people didn't go to St. Louis. Travel from the rest of the world to Missouri wasn't easy in 1904, a problem that was made all the worse by the Russo-Japanese War. Four years earlier, 28 nations had taken part in the Paris Games. But in St. Louis, there were only 12. And of the 651 competitors, 526 of them were American. The next largest involvement was Canada, who had 56 athletes representing them. Germany had 22, Greece had 14, technically. No other nation even hits the double digits. Many of those that did show up to compete, including the Americans, weren't top athletes, and some of them were downright novelties. And they didn't bring much of a crowd along with them. There was another problem. Say you're visiting the fair in 1904, and you walk by a big pond with a small crowd gathered around it. Oh, look at that, you say to your walking partner. This must be the artificial life-saving pond. I read about this. The Coast Guard built it to demonstrate these new unsinkable lifeboats they invented. Then why are people swimming in it, your friend replies. Well, it must be some sort of demonstration, you answer. Don't you know anything, rumbles a viewer on the bank. 
This is the Olympics freestyle relay. No, it's not, says another. This is just a YMCA race. I heard it was part of the university games, suggests a third watcher. As it happens, they're all wrong. This particular relay was a match between the New York, Chicago, and Missouri athletic clubs. But when the race was over, Olympic observers said, eh, sure, why the hell not, and decided it was an Olympic event after all. Nobody could tell what was part of the Olympics, what was part of the fair, or what was part of something else altogether. Not even, in some cases, the athletes and the officials in the event. Oh, and that Coast Guard life-saving pond? In addition to hosting the swimming events, it also hosted the cattle from the fair's livestock exhibit. Within a year of the water polo tourney, four of the players had died of typhus. So that's all pretty bad. But nothing compared to the story we're here to tell. St. Louis may have since been dethroned from its place as the worst Olympiad of all time, but it still has the dubious distinction of hosting the single most disastrous Olympic event of all time, the 1904 Olympic Marathon. Here's a hot take. The marathon is, from its very conception, a bad idea. The Ionian city of Miletus was nominally Greek, sitting on the eastern coast of the Aegean Sea, but had been unhappily under Persian rule for a few decades. King Darius I of Persia appointed the tyrant Aristagoras to rule over it sometime not long before 500 BC. In 499, some exiles from the island of Naxos took refuge in Miletus and asked Aristagoras if he could help them take back control of the island. Aristagoras wasn't interested in returning power to the refugees, but he was quite interested in taking control of Naxos for himself. But the Milesian army wasn't up to the task, so Aristagoras sought help from King Darius's brother, Artaphernes. In the spring of 1499, Aristagoras, the Naxian exiles, and a large naval force commanded by Persian Admiral Megabates set out to invade Naxos. But midway across the Aegean, Aristagoras picked a fight with Megabates, who betrayed him, sending word of the coming secret attack to Naxos and dooming the effort. The Naxians had time to prepare for attack. Aristagoras was stuck in a months-long siege he hadn't prepared or provisioned for, and eventually had to turn tail, run back home. Aristagoras knew he was in trouble. He'd promised Persia an island, borrowed an army, and lost it all. So when he returned to Miletus, he expected King Darius to come and punish him. What could he do? How could he avoid this fate? There was nothing. At worst, he'd be put on a pike. At best, he'd be relieved of his command, and a new tyrant would be allowed to subjugate Ionia. Oh, well, that was the ticket. The Ionians hated King Darius and hated Persian rule. They still considered themselves Greek under an occupying power. If Aristagoras could inspire them to rise up, something they wouldn't need much stoking to get behind, he could save his skin. King Darius couldn't punish him if King Darius wasn't his king anymore. So Aristagoras convinced the Ionians to revolt. Not only that, but critically, he got support from the mainland Greek city-states of Athens and Eritrea, who were worried that Darius would be at their door one way or the other down the line. Altogether, they marched unopposed on Sardis, the capital city of Persian Lydia, and burnt it to the ground. Then the Persian army showed up and kicked the Greeks' butts back to the sea. Athens and Eritrea abandoned Aristagoras, who retreated around the region in fear, chased by Persia at every step. Eventually, he and his remaining followers found safe haven. They laid down their burdens in Thrace, whose people had offered them sanctuary. 
No sooner had they put down their weapons than the Thracians descended upon them, murdering every last Milesian in sight, including Aristagoras. King Darius had put down the Ionian Revolt, but he wasn't done. Darius knew how to grind an axe like you wouldn't believe, and he wasn't about to forget that Athens had supported Aristagoras. And just in case he did forget, he commanded his closest servant to remind him. Every day, three times before dinner, he would say to his master, remember the Athenians. In 490 BC, he finally stopped hitting the snooze button and sent his troops to Athens with orders to burn the city to the ground. The Athenian forces met Persia's near the town of Marathon. Considering we're here to talk about a 1904 foot race, we've probably spent more time on this already than we need to, so let's just say this. Athens scored an unlikely and decisive victory at the Battle of Marathon, and according to Plutarch, the messenger Philippides was then ordered to run the 25 miles back to Athens to announce the victory. When he arrived in the city, he is said to have yelled out, We have won! and then fallen to the ground dead. That is the auspicious origin of the marathon. As you can probably guess, this story is likely bullshit. Plutarch gives it to us 500 years after it happened, while Herodotus, who was actually around at the time, doesn't. He says that Philippides was the messenger Athens sent to Sparta, asking for aid against Darius, and that he made the 150-mile round trip in three days without dying of exhaustion. And we can pretty confidently say the Athenian army wasn't sitting on their laurels and shouting victory after Marathon, because the only way that they had won the battle was because half the Persian army had gotten back in their boats to round the peninsula and attack Athens directly from behind. As soon as Marathon was over, the Athenian army had to force march back home to defend the city. But whatever. History knew, and knows, the version where Philippides runs 25 miles and dies, especially after Robert Browning wrote a poem about it in 1879. When Coubertin and crew were formulating the first modern Olympic Games, they wanted a big, new, audacious flagship event. Something that would demand popular attention, stretch human ability, and remind the world of the feats of ancient times. When French philologist Michel Brial suggested they recreate the famous, or infamous, run, there was near universal and near instantaneous agreement. It was too perfect. On April 10th, 1896, 17 athletes lined up at the town of Marathon to race along Philippides' probably mythical path to Athens and into the Olympic Stadium. The race was led by French runner Albine Le Mussier, with Australian Edwin Fleck and American Arthur Blake in second and third place, respectively. But none of them would even finish the race, let alone win it. Blake dropped out just over halfway through. Le Moussier quickly followed. Flack then took the lead for approximately the next five miles and then gave up too. In the end, a Greek named Spiridon Lewis won the race. Spiridon, or Spiros, wasn't a professional runner or even an athlete, but he carried heavy skins and tankards of water all around Athens and its suburbs for his father's mineral water business. After his victory, Spiros was transformed from a humble water carrier into a national hero. His triumph was an amazing and rousing success story for the first Olympic marathon. The below-the-fold results weren't as sunny. Of the 17 original athletes who set out that day, only four of them had managed to complete the race. The rest had all dropped out due to exhaustion, and one of the finishers, Spiridon Belikos, had hopped onto a carriage and ridden part of the race. 
In the first marathon, the successful one that sold the event to the world, 14 of 17 competitors had failed to finish. At the second Olympiad in Paris, four years later, 13 runners competed, and only somewhere between five and seven of them managed to make the whole journey. The Paris Olympics were a mess of their own, with record-keeping so spotty that we don't know for sure whether the sixth and seventh-placed finishers actually completed the race. Hell, it wasn't even clear who the winner, Michel Fiato, was racing for, Luxembourg or France. But again, none of that compares to 1904. It's August 30th, and the marathon is meant to close out the months-long Olympics that has been messily plopping about over the course of the World's Fair. Unlike some of the earlier events, it's clear that this is an Olympic marathon. There's a crowd, there's officials, and there are competitors. A lot of competitors. 32 runners are at the starting block. There were meant to be 41, but nine of them just plain didn't show, a group we will call the smart ones. As with every event in 1904, the majority of those athletes are American. But Greece has nine marathon runners, technically. We'll get back to that. Rounding things out are three South Africans and one Cuban. That's it. Only four nations competing, two of them barely, and the United States positively swamping everyone else. While this is the biggest event of the Games, it's not especially well-organized, or organized at all. And almost every aspect is going to be working against the runners. The track will start with five rings around the Olympic Stadium before working its way west through the country roads of St. Louis County. That's going to be the first problem. Or the first several problems, really. For starters, the track isn't well-defined. It's a wending trail of random turns. Along the way, the race will contain several sizable hills, which is just a nightmare for the runners. But the biggest issue with the roads is that they aren't paved. They're dirt and dust. They haven't even been groomed. In some places, the dust is inches deep, festooned with rocks and debris and broken glass. Hell, groomed? They haven't even been closed. They're still open to the public, to wagons and automobiles, including a phalanx of cars and carriages carrying support staff, reporters, and officials, all directly in front of the athletes, kicking up dust straight into their faces. The next problem is the weather. Although the week preceding the event had been unbearably stifling, the race's organizers refused to move up the starting time to earlier in the morning. No, the race is going to start at 2.30 p.m. when the sun is high, the temperature is in the 90s, and the humidity is nearing 100%. It's the perfect time for a race, according to James E. Sullivan. Sullivan was the secretary of the Amateur Athletic Union at the time and publisher of the Athletic News. He was the chief organizer of the marathon and also, at the time, a proponent of a strange fitness regimen that suspected a connection between strong performance and dehydration. Yes, that does bear repeating, so here goes. Jim Sullivan had a hunch that, contrary to all experience and logic, dehydration improved performance. You just had to force people to fight through the initial pangs of, um, dying. So, upon his instruction, this 25-mile race over seven hills on dirt roads surrounded by traffic in 90-plus degree heat and almost 100% humidity would have a grand total of one location from which the runners could get water, a small well 12 miles in. I think that about covers the external factors. As for the racers themselves, there's 
So, so much to be said. But before the starter pistol goes off, the most important thing to know is that of the 32 unfortunate souls at the stadium that afternoon, maybe seven of them have ever tried to run a marathon before. Of the nine Greeks, not a single one of them has experience with distance running. A few of the Americans are accomplished marathon runners at the Boston Marathon and others, and there's some reason to think that one of the South African competitors, Bertie Harris, has run some sort of length before. That's it. The rest of the field is made up of sprinters, track and field generalists, and, well, <laughs> let's call the third category miscellaneous. They're taking up their positions at the starting line now. It's 3 o'clock p.m., and the temperature in the sun is now north of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. We're three minutes away from the starting pistol. Let's cut to commercial. It's 3.02 and 50 seconds. The runners are at their marks. David Francis, president of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition Company, raises the starter pistol. And they're off. John Charles Lorden starts out ahead. He's one of the few established long-distance runners on site. But there wasn't any money in such things, so the 28-year-old Irish immigrant worked as a shipping agent in Cambridge and trained at night. In 1901, he finished fifth in the Boston Marathon. The next year, he took second. Finally, in 1903, he won and became the odds-on favorite to take the gold at St. Louis. He very much did not. About three blocks into the race, just under half a mile, Lorden slowed down, stopped, and then began vomiting uncontrollably. Like that, he was out. Three blocks. I have to go further to pick up my calamine lotion from CVS. It's not clear what exactly took Lorden out. It was probably too early in the race to have been dehydration, and he hadn't gotten anywhere near the well, so it wasn't waterborne parasites. Oh, what? Did I say something? Never mind. My best guess is that Lorden hit the same difficulty as William Rosenbeer Garcia. Garcia was running in the middle of the heap for the better part of the race, but then somehow disappeared without anyone noticing. A little while later, a passing car, remember, there were passing cars, found him prone on the side of the road, semi-conscious and coughing up blood. He was driven immediately to the hospital where doctors diagnosed the issue. The dust from the road, kicked up from the carriages and cars, had coated and cut up his esophagus and stomach. It was a good thing he was discovered when he was, they said, because in another hour, he'd have bled to death. Samuel Alexander Meller Jr., better known as Sammy, was born in Yonkers in 1879, and by the time he turned 18, he was already winning races. In 1901, he won the marathon at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. Hey, that's where President McKinley was assassinated, and took third at the Boston Marathon. The next year, he won, and in 1903, came in second to Lorden, who was now collapsed in a puddle of his own sick, barely outside the starting gate, making Sammy the next most likely to succeed. The three-mile marker of the race was the Clayton Courthouse, and at that point, Sammy was in third place. 
In front of him were Edward Carr in second and Mike Spring in first. Spring was another Boston Marathon rival, having placed third in 1903 behind Lorden and Sammy. In 1904, just prior to the Olympics, he'd won. I have no idea about Edward Carr, but it doesn't matter because neither he nor Spring finished the race. At the six-mile marker, Sammy was in second, trailed by Carr and Spring. In first place was Arthur Newton, another American, who had run in the second Olympic marathon in Paris four years earlier, where he placed fifth. The rankings show that Newton and Sammy were gaining as Carr and Spring began to flag. Thirteen miles into the race was the village of Despairs. At that point, Carr and Spring had both given in, probably due to cramping caused by dehydration, and Sammy Malore had overtaken Arthur Newton, leading the race in first place. But also by the time they entered the village of Despairs at the 13-mile marker, something else had happened. They'd visited the well. And the water at the well, it seems, didn't agree with everyone. It's not totally clear if that was Sammy's primary problem or not. Most accounts say that not far beyond Despairs, Sammy Malore doubled over and gave up. But apparently, Sammy himself used to say that he'd gotten so far ahead that he'd feared he'd made a wrong turn and then doubled back to find he hadn't. And then he doubled over and gave up. Either way. At just over halfway through, the dust, dehydration, and dingy well water had collectively wiped the track of half its runners, including several of the most well-known and well-thought-of athletes. With Sammy Malore out and William Garcia bleeding in a ditch, there were pretty much four people left in the race who were anything resembling traditional athletes. But forget about them for a minute. Let's talk instead about the untraditional ones. For starters, a word about the nine Greeks in the race. As best as I can tell, not a one of them was a runner. Of any kind. At all. Furthermore, all nine of them were living in the United States and in one or another stage of getting their U.S. citizenship. I think, I can't prove this, but I think that each one of them came to St. Louis as something like an act of national chivalry. They couldn't allow an Olympic marathon to be held without someone representing Greece. Given that, it should come as no surprise that only three of the nine finished the race at all. Andrew Oikonomu was the last person to cross the finish line. There's no record of how long it took him, so it could have been the next day for all we know. The strongest finish among the Greek heroes was Demetrios Velos. We don't know how long his run took either, but he came in fifth. And while we're on the topic of international competitors, let's talk about South Africa. And if 1904 South Africa isn't enough of a hint, let me say it plainly. This part of the story is rough. It deals with issues of racism and white supremacy and colonialism, and if you're not in a mood or place to hear about it, go ahead and skip forward about five minutes. One of the South African competitors is in the books as Bertie Harris, with a birth date of 1884. And that's all we know about him, other than that he didn't finish the race. Oh, and that he was a white South African. I can't tell whether he was a Boer, the Dutch-descended Afrikaners, or English. I can't tell anything about him. And sorry, Bertie, I don't really care. It's the other two South Africans at the marathon who are worth talking about. For almost a hundred years, they were known only as Len Tao and Yamasani, and were identified as a pair of Zulu tribesmen. In 1999, Professor Floris van der Moer 
determined that they were, in actuality, from the Bantu-speaking Swana ethnic group, and that their real names were Len Taunyani and Jan Mashani. They appear in two photographs from August 30th, 1904, one of which shows the two of them together wearing their numbers, 35 and 36, before the race. Jan is wearing a wide-brimmed farmer's hat, a button-up shirt with the sleeves rolled up, cut-off slack shorts with a fabric belt tie and low-top boots. Len's attire is even less suited. He's barefoot. You don't have to look at the picture for very long before the question strikes. How did they get there? There's simply no way that South Africa, 1904 South Africa, sent these two swanas along with lily-white Bertie Harris to represent them at the St. Louis Olympics. They don't even have good running clothes. Granted, nobody in 1904 had good running clothes, but Lentaoyani isn't wearing shoes. How could this have happened? How did these two seemingly random men become the first black Africans to ever compete in the Olympic Games? The simple answer is Len Taoyani and Jan Marshani didn't come to St. Louis for the Olympics. They came for the fair. If you know about the history of world fairs, you might have a sinking feeling already. Since 1874, when wild animal exhibitor Carl Hagenbeck first brought a group of Samoans to Germany and caged them for display in what he called their natural state, human zoos were all the rage in Europe and North America. The third Paris World's Fair had a human zoo and was such a hit that from there on out, everybody needed one. But there were concerns, and there was discomfort about gawking at caged foreigners. So, these sickening spectacles were given the tiniest fig leaf of scientific credibility. No, they weren't human zoos. They were ethnological expositions. Their role was to educate and enlighten the viewers, not titillate. This veil only made things worse, as the imprimatur of educated professionals only helped further codify racist pseudoscience. At the Louisiana Purchase Exposition of 1904, the bullshit term trotted out for the human zoo was maybe the most offensive of all. The Parade of Evolutionary Progress. The parade featured mock villages of Filipinos, Apaches, Congolese, Inuits, and more, lined up according to how civilized the organizers found them. Whether Len Taunyani and Jan Mashiani played a part in that disgusting parade, though, isn't clear to me because there was another shockingly white supremacist attraction at the 1904 World's Fair. Well, actually several, but one in particular. Between 1899 and 1902, what is commonly called the Second Boer War was fought in South Africa between the British Empire and the white Afrikaans-speaking Boers. It was a brutal affair, with the English ultimately prevailing through scorched earth tactics and concentration camps. After the war's end, the nation was in shambles, much of the farmland had been destroyed, people removed, death and disease and poverty abounded for years. So, when an ad was placed in the Johannesburg Rand Daily Mail in March of 1904, promising gainful employment with a four-pound-a-month wage, travel, room, and board, plenty of desperate people jumped at the opportunity. The ad had been placed by Captain A.W. Lewis, a Canadian veteran of the Boer War, possessed by an odd entrepreneurial spirit. He aimed to gather other veterans, British and Boer, and recreate the battles of Pardenburg and Colenso for fairgoers twice a day. The Boer War exhibition 
was the largest and highest grossing event of the whole World's Fair. It spread out across 15 acres, built out to the height of turn-of-the-century circus realism. No expense was spared. Hundreds of mules and oxen filled in the backdrop. Horses were trained to fall and limp on command. There were 600 soldiers, many of whom used the same uniforms and weapons in the reenactment that they'd used in the real thing. Included in their number were Benjamin Villon and Piet Cronje, actual Boer generals who had overseen those battles. The climax of the event was the escape of General Duet, played by an actor paid $16 a month to jump on horseback from a 35-foot-high artificial cliff into an artificial river. To get around the exhibit, a miniature train was constructed, which on the night of November 11th was robbed at gunpoint by two masked bandits who made off with $100 in cash and valuables. Between the fights, visitors could watch horse races or other sporting events. They could eat and drink, and they could visit the performers, the British barracks, the Boer encampments, and the African villages. Len Taunyani and Jan Mashiani came to St. Louis to be part of the African villages of the Boer War exhibition. They lived in the phony surroundings with the bad St. Louis water for months, confined almost entirely to the property and paid a pittance. Then, on August 12th, they saw an opportunity. The organizers of the fair had put together yet another sporting event in addition to the Olympics and the YMCA and the university and high school competitions and whatever else randomly found its way to the grounds. Taking advantage of the Boer War exhibition, the Parade of Evolutionary Progress, and the many other blatantly, horrifyingly racist events of the fair, they put together what they called Anthropology Days, a two-day event where 100 indigenous people from around the world were put to work competing at an assortment of games meant to showcase the superiority of intellect, physique, and sportsmanship of the white race. In the words of the billing, the event was meant to test the startling rumors and statements that were made in relation to the speed, stamina, and strength of several savage tribes. That testing would include a shot-put match, a tug-of-war, weightlifting, and yes, track and field. Taunyani placed third in the Anthropology Days, and this is what the organizers named it, Intertribal Marathon, and somehow, through that bronze finish, got him and Mashiani into the Olympics. In spite of being badly dressed for the event and lacking shoes, both men finished the race, much better than could be said for the majority of the participants. Len Taunyani came in ninth place, right behind Sidney Hatch, a professional runner who had won the silver medal in the four-mile team race. Jan Mashiani came in 12th and probably would have done much better had he not been chased by a dog for a full country mile off the track. And that is all we know about Len Tanyani and Jan Mashiani. There was one more international competitor at the 1904 marathon, and he, I'm guessing, is bound to become your favorite athlete of the race. Maybe your favorite athlete of any race, or maybe your favorite athlete full stop. His full name varies from source to source, but my best guess is that his proper name was Felix de Caridad Carvial y Soto. Sometimes he's called Andrin Carvial, but usually he's referred to as Felix. Felix was born outside of Havana, in the town of San Antonio de los Baños. Nothing is known about his parents or family aside from that they were poor. 
In fact, nothing much is known about Felix at all until the 1890s when he's on record serving as a dispatch carrier for General Maximo Gomez in the Cuban War of Independence and Spanish-American War, where the one ended and the other began is nearly impossible to suss out. His job as dispatch carrier was to run messages from location to location, a task he seemed uniquely good at. Felix Carvajal wasn't muscle-bound or long-limbed. On sight, he showed absolutely no signs of athleticism. He was wiry and short, just five feet tall and roughly 100 pounds. He was a wisp of a man, the likes of which the winds threatened to carry off. But he loved to run. And under General Gomez, he proved able to do so almost indefinitely. And so after the war, he went back to his old job, running mail between the constellation of towns and villages that surrounded Havana. When Felix heard about the Olympic marathon poised to be held in St. Louis, he felt in his bones that he was meant to go. But Cuba had no plans to send anyone to St. Louis for track and field. In fact, the only Cubans with designs on St. Louis were eight members of the national Cuban fencing team, and they were going there on their own dollar. If Felix wanted to follow suit, he'd need to raise his own funds. To do so, he first visited the mayor's office in Havana, where he intended to make his plea. He had the makings of a hometown hero, bringing recognition, fame, and fortune to Havana, the kind of guy you could build statues of if only the city would give him a hand. When he told the clerk he was there to see the mayor about representing his city and country in the Olympic marathon, he was, and this isn't very surprising, is it? He was turned away at the door. Felix wouldn't give up so easily. He walked back out into the square and started running round and around it, over and over, for hours. The mayor worked late, finally retiring from his office at 6.30 that evening. When he reached the street, he found a large crowd cheering, laughing, and taking bets on how much longer Felix Carvajal could go. He'd been keeping the same brisk pace for more than four hours. The mayor agreed to pay his way to the States, but only barely. Carvajal had enough for a boat ticket to New Orleans, and that was it. He'd still need money for the rest of the journey and for food and for proper running clothes. So he gave more running demos, asking the people of Cuba to throw in what they could to send him to St. Louis for the glory of their country. According to one story, he ran the entire length of the nation, more than 700 miles. Doubtful, but cool. However he managed it, he got the necessary funding and headed off by steamship from Havana to New Orleans, where he promptly lost all his remaining money in a craps game. Every last sent. Carvajal had to hitchhike his way from New Orleans to St. Louis, where he arrived barely in time for the race and having not eaten in days. He was also dressed in his street clothes. He had a long shirt and trousers with long johns underneath them and a beret. One of his fellow racers took pity on him, at least, letting him borrow some scissors to cut his pants into shorts. His shoes were homemade leather loafers that had been patched over over the course of years. Like a foot-worn ship of Theseus, it was uncertain whether a single scrap of the original shoes remained. The diminutive Cuban in his cut-off trousers and loafers stood out, even in an event as strange as this one. Felix seems to have been a fast crowd favorite due to his high spirits, jocular attitude, and habit of frequently breaking from the race to talk to people he passed by on the street. At one point early on, he approached the car of Charles J.P. Lucas. Lucas was the head of the ground crew for one of the other racers, Thomas Hicks, who we will get back to, and he wrote a book about the event, one of the few primary sources out there. 
Lucas says that he and his team were eating peaches in the car when up bounced Felix, running alongside the window and asking if he could have a bite. Lucas told him to scram, but before he did, Felix nabbed two peaches right out of the men's hands. They were the first food he'd had in days, and Felix is said to have happily slurped them down as he continued to breeze his way carefreely down the course. At the three-mile mark, records were kept of the first 13 people to cross. Felix Carbial wasn't among them. Whoever was keeping track at the six-mile mark only saw fit to write down the first six racers. Felix wasn't on that list either. The 13-mile tally was the last one taken before the finish. By that time, the field had winnowed considerably, what with the heat, the dehydration, the bad well water, and the esophagus tearing dust clouds. Only the first seven names were recorded there. Felix Carvial was in sixth. It was an impressive comeback, made all the more so if we're to believe the story about what happened to Felix between miles six and 13. According to writer Bill Henry, somewhere on that stretch, Felix noticed an apple orchard and stopped to pick and eat a few. Unbeknownst to him, the apples were rotten, and Felix's stomach began to churn almost immediately. Rather than drop out, as so many around him were, Felix decided instead to lie down beneath a tree and take a nap. When he awoke, he started running again, and by mile 13, had soared to sixth place. But Bill Henry wrote that detail up in the approved history of the Olympics, and the titular approval was given by none other than Pierre de Coubertin, founder of the modern Olympic Games and Olympic class grouser about the 1904 iteration. Remember, the Coubertin hadn't even deigned to go to St. Louis. He was prickly about how the organizers had blackmailed the Olympic Committee into taking back the games from Chicago. And of all the organizers he disliked, he held special ire for dehydration enthusiast James E. Sullivan. Several of the more pejorative claims approved by Coubertin for Henry's book appear to have been invented to disparage the St. Louis games generally and Sullivan in particular. So, the apple nap story is pretty suspect. Nevertheless, there's no denying that what Felix Carvajal accomplished on August 30th, 1904 was incredibly impressive. James J.P. Lucas said in his book that he was the best man in the race, physically and that it was only his lack of preparation, support, and gear that held him back from winning the whole event. Even with cut-off trousers, old leather shoes, and nothing in his stomach besides a couple of peaches and perhaps some rotten apples, Felix Carvajal finished the most gruelingly stupid marathon ever run in fourth place. Which brings us to the medalists. The bronze was won by Paris Olympics veteran Arthur Newton. Not much story there. Albert Corey won the silver, and if there's anything interesting about his run, it didn't make the papers. But his official record did cause some fairly significant confusion because nobody could quite work out what country he was competing for. Corey was born and raised in Marseille, France, but some years before the race, he'd moved to Chicago and had qualified for the games through the Chicago Athletic Association, whose colors he evidently wore during the marathon. In the official Olympic record, his medal is counted towards the United States. Yet, when he ran in the four-mile team race a few days later, he was counted as French, and the Chicago Athletic Association runners consequently were marked down as a mixed team. From what I can tell, this makes him the only athlete to ever compete for two different countries in one Olympic Games. But anyway, 
let's get to the gold. For the crowd at the stadium, the marathon must have well and truly sucked. According to Lucas, the arena was filled beyond capacity when the starter pistol fired. That's more than 9,000 people excited to watch the 32 athletes make a quick couple of laps before disappearing out the front door and out of sight. Then there was nothing. There was no commentary, no binocular viewing platforms or whatever. All of those people were simply left to mull about in the 100 degree heat as the hours uneventfully ticked by. By the time the first runner re-entered the stadium, as many as half of the spectators had bailed. But those that were left must have been truly profoundly excited, if only because this signaled that they too would soon get to leave. So when that man broke the tape, the whole place broke into thunderous applause. And they didn't even know the whole story. His name was Fred Lords. He was a 20-year-old New York bricklayer who trained by running at night. He got into the games the same way Sammy Malore had, through a special five-mile race held by New York City's Amateur Athletic Union at Celtic Park. He didn't have nearly the bona fides as Malore or Newton or Lorden or... Well, look, he had at least run a couple of long distances before and owned a pair of shorts, so that put him in pretty good shape relative to the field. In the records, Fred Lors is shown in fourth place, right behind Sammy, at three miles in. At six miles, he'd fallen to fifth. And at mile 13, he was no longer in the race. Dehydration and cramping caused him to stop around nine miles in. Then he came back only to miraculously win the race? How did he do it? By car. The record is a little fuzzy about how this all went down, but nine miles into the race, Lures just plain dropped out. The reporting conflicts on where the car came from. Some sources say it was his manager's car. Others say he just stuck out his thumb and grabbed a hitch on whatever vehicle happened to come rolling by. Either way, he spent the next 11 miles in the comforts of a newfangled automobile. Then, apparently, the car broke down, and Fred Lors, feeling refreshed and renewed, started on his way again. Now, the real question about Fred Lors isn't where the car came from, but to what degree he meant to cheat. What we can ascertain is that he reached the stadium, having apparently run the last five miles on his own, entered it, broke the finish line tape, and let himself be named the winner. According to Bill Henry's book, Alice Roosevelt, the enfant terrible daughter of President Teddy, even put a wreath on his head and was getting ready to drop the gold medal around his neck when someone in the crowd screamed out that they had seen Lors relaxing in the back of a car mid-race. This is the part of the story that's the hardest to piece together, much worse than Felix Carvajal's apple nap. It seems that the Alice Roosevelt part is made up. It's very doubtful she was there and was probably added to the story because she was synonymous with scandal at the time. But photos do show Lors wreathed alongside the eventual actual winner of the race. When the cheers turned to booze, Lors quickly admitted to the car ride and said it was a joke, all in good fun, that he'd never intended to actually let people think he'd won. And that, that smells like bullshit to me. Just as Fred's fraud was being uncovered, 15 minutes after he broke the tape, the real winner of the 1904 St. Louis Olympic Marathon crossed the finish line. Thomas Hicks. Oh, man. Tom. 
Thomas. I mean, you're not going to believe it, unless you already know how this story ends. And even then, it's still hard to believe. I'm having trouble believing it right now. In this, the worst marathon, the worst Olympic event of all time, where dehydration and heat and scummy water knocked out 66% of the competitors, where two men were entered as a racist gimmick, in the race where one man nearly bled to death on the side of the road, somehow the winner has the most harrowing story of all. Here we go. Thomas Hicks. Thomas John Hicks was from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and had finished sixth at the Boston Marathon twice in a row in 1901 and 1902. In 1904, he placed second just months before the Olympic Games. He had a few other track and field highlights to speak of, including a YMCA cross-country state championship, so dude was a pretty serious runner. Of all the journeys on the road that day, we know the most about Thomas's. That's in part because he won, sure, but it's mostly because of that book by Charles J.P. Lucas, in which he detailed the whole ordeal. In Lucas's estimation, Hicks wasn't anywhere close to the best athlete in the race. That honor, you'll remember, he gave to Felix Carvajal. The only reason Hicks won, he said, was because of the efforts of Lucas and his team. After hearing about the nature and scope of those efforts, you're probably going to disagree. Let's go back one more time to those mile marker rankings. At mile three, Tom Hicks was in seventh place, just behind William Garcia, the one who nearly died from sucking dust. At six miles, he's advanced one to sixth place, just behind Fred Lors, who was nearly ready to grab his cheaty car ride. At the 13 mile marker, Sammy Malore was in first, Arthur Newton was in second, and our boy Tom Hicks was taking up third. Unlike most of those still in the game at this point, Hicks didn't get water from the well, maybe to his benefit considering the reports that it made people sick. But the problem with not getting the water from the well is that he didn't get water from the well. In fact, he didn't get water from anywhere, even though he was one of the few athletes who had a team with him that might have supplied him. When they passed the well, Hicks begged Lucas to get him some water, but Lucas refused. Lucas apparently cottoned to the same profound stupidity about dehydration and performance that Sullivan did. So, instead of giving him a drink, Lucas took a wet sponge, washed out Hicks' mouth with it, then squeezed the rest of the water over his head. Incredibly, this wasn't enough, and Hicks began to flag. It's at that point that Charles J.P. Lucas administered the first round of his treatment, a mixture of egg whites and... Ah, take a guess. What might you mix with egg whites to revitalize an exhausted runner? What are you thinking? Something bad, right? It's 1904, so probably... What? Cocaine? Heroin? God, if only he'd fed him egg whites and heroin. That would have been so much better. No. Instead, Charles J.P. Lucas fed Tom Hicks an egg white mixed with strychnine. Strychnine! That's rat poison for the uninitiated. Actually, it's not, because they don't even use it as rat poison anymore, because even rats won't eat it. Strychnine is what is known as a competitive antagonist to glycine. Glycine works as an inhibitor in the spinal cord and brainstem. Basically, it's the brakes. When your central nervous system sends a signal to your body to move, glycine tells it when to stop. Unless your glycine receptors are all gunked up with strychnine, 
then your muscles will start to spasm and convulse uncontrollably, which the brilliant Charles J.P. Lucas presumed meant Tom Hicks would be able to run much faster whether he wanted to or not. It's a very, very stupid idea. Made all the stupider when you remember that the same spasms strychnine causes in muscles also tend to happen in the lungs, leading to a painful death. If you accidentally ingest strychnine, or purposefully ingest strychnine, please don't do that, there are several treatments available that stand a chance at saving your life. Barbiturates and benzos are both fairly effective, and knowing Charles J.P. Lucas, they were probably on hand. But the other treatment for strychnine poisoning is far more common. Water which, naturally, Tom Hicks was denied. Somehow, the sponge of water, egg whites, and rat poison kept Hicks going, or it's probably more accurate to say somehow he kept going in spite of them. Not long after the 13-mile marker, Sammy Malore doubled over and Arthur Newton slowed down. Thomas Hicks was in the lead. He never lost it. But seven miles later, he began to dip again. I mean... That's an understatement. What he did was start begging, barely coherently. He begged for water. He begged for food. He begged for someone to please let him lie down. To those requests, Charles J.P. Lucas answered, No, no, and no. Instead of proper food, he was fed two more egg whites. Instead of rest, he was administered more strychnine. And instead of water, to wash it all down, he was given a canteen of brandy. Again, amazingly, all this fails to kill him. In fact, for a moment, he even snaps back to life a little. Then another runner passed him, and Thomas Hicks slipped into despair. It was Fred Lors, fresh from his car ride, looking impossibly well put together. It's possible the team knew that Lors had dropped out and reassured Hicks he was still ahead. However they managed, somehow the team got Hicks to keep it together, if barely. But the last two miles were still ahead of him, and they were going to be the most brutal of all. Hicks was shuffling along, his knees stiff, his arms limp at his sides. His skin was the deep gray of rotting beef, and he was hallucinating vividly. He believed that there were 20 miles left to run and couldn't be convinced otherwise. There were two more large hills to go, and Tom had just polished off his brandy. Luckily, I guess, a spectator from New York named Ernie Hertberg was on the scene and offered to top him off with more. With another few belts of brandy, two more egg whites, and a bucket of warm water poured over his head, Hicks began the slow shamble up the first hill. When he reached the top, he half-jogged, half-fell down the other side. Then he repeated the process for the second hill. According to Lucas's book, Hicks then ran into the stadium cleared the last 400 yards, and crossed the finish line exhausted. But the reporting of the day disagrees, and it is backed up by photographs. They show that just a few hundred yards from the stadium, Tom Hicks lost the ability to stand under his own power. Lucas and another member of the support team, H.C. McGrath, propped him up, arms over shoulders, and half carried him into the arena. By the time they reached the finish line, Lucas and McGrath were holding his whole weight, with Tom Hicks wearily waving his legs through the air. As soon as they let him go, he fell to the ground. At about the same time, Fred Lore's deception was being uncovered, and the gold medal was taken over to Hicks, who was too weak to hold it. 
Instead of being lifted up on Lucas's shoulders and carried around the stadium, he was instead tended to by a team of four doctors for over an hour until he was well enough to be lifted into a car and taken directly towards more serious medical attention. There's a photo of him in the car with the medal around his neck. He's surrounded by cheering friends, fans, and other athletes, but he doesn't seem to see any of it. He stares vacantly into the camera, the portrait of grim death. His finishing time was three hours, 28 minutes, and 53 seconds. That's roughly an hour longer than the average gold medal winner, and a half hour longer than the second worst Olympic marathon winner, Michel Fiato, who ran in the also quite terrible 1900 Paris Olympic marathon. In fact, if you compile all the Olympians to ever complete the race, not win, just make it over the finish line, Thomas Hicks, the winner in 1904, ranks in the bottom 2%. Over the course of that three and a half hours, almost the exact length of Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, he'd lost eight pounds. How's about an epilogue, eh? Many of the runners in the 1904 marathon went on to impressive track and field careers. John Lorden was running marathons through at least 1909. The French Chicagoan Albert Corey won the St. Louis Marathon in 1908. Sammy Malore went on to win the Canadian Marathon in the fall after the Olympics. He won the Newark Marathon in 1907. In 1909, he won two races in New York City, the Bronx Marathon and the Empire City Marathon. Then, having run 29 marathons and founded at least one, the Yonkers Marathon, Sammy was free to give it up and retire. The next year, he came back and placed 10th at Boston. Arthur Lee Newton, on the other hand, took up work in the auto industry, eventually becoming president of Glidden Buick Corporation in New Rochelle, New York. In addition to his Olympic bronze for the marathon, he also won a bronze in the steeplechase, a gold medal in the four-mile team race, and a 1946 Distinguished Service Citation from the Automotive Hall of Fame for his sales leadership. On August 13, 1909, a Pennsylvania Railroad passenger train running the route from Chicago to New York tried to make up time by accelerating to around 50 miles an hour in the middle of Fort Wayne, Indiana. The train jumped the tracks and crashed right into a freight train on the opposing side. Three railroad employees were killed and some 35 passengers and crew were injured. Among that number was organizer, sport publisher, and thirst enthusiast James Edward Sullivan, the man responsible for the marathon debacle. After the race, Sullivan had failed upward to the position of president of the Amateur Athletic Union. Then he was elected to the New York City Board of Education. At the time of the accident, he was known as America's foremost leader in athletics and recreation, according to the New York Times. The Grey Lady also credited him with getting more sports and gym in public schools. His injuries from the 1911 train wreck were severe, but he lived on until September of 1914, when he died during an operation, which was a consequence of the accident. In 1912, the fifth Olympic Games were held in Stockholm, Sweden. For the first time in its history, the Olympics allowed women to compete there in swimming and diving events. James Edward Sullivan spent the months preceding and following his injuries lobbying to ensure that American women would not be allowed to compete. 
in that last effort, he was successful. You're a hard man to feel sorry for, Jim. Pierre de Coubertin, creator of the modern Olympic Games, continued to innovate, sometimes successfully, sometimes less so. In 1912, for instance, he debuted a number of new events of his creation, including the pentathlon, successful, as well as competitive architecture, literature, music, painting, and sculpture, less so. The gold medal for literature went to none other than Pierre de Coubertin himself for his poem, Ode to Sport. He retired from his presidency of the International Olympic Committee in 1924. He re-emerged into public life to help Berlin win the 1936 Games in exchange for a promise from the Nazi regime to nominate him for the Nobel Peace Prize. Instead, the Nobel Committee gave the prize to Karl von Osinski, the pacifist journalist who was jailed for exposing the German rearmament. Coubertin died of a heart attack in 1937. The dirty, low-down, car-riding cheater Fred Lors was given lifetime bans by both the Olympics Committee and the Amateur Athletic Union for his trickery, though both were rescinded within a matter of months. In 1905, he won the Boston Marathon without the aid of an automobile. He went on to run marathons all around the country, though he never won another serious race. He died of pneumonia in 1914. Just as Fred Lors continued on without vehicular assistance, so too did gold medalist Thomas Hicks keep running without the aid of more rat poison. He won the Chicago Marathon in 1906. A few years later, he moved to Manitoba with his brothers and worked mining claims until his retirement. He died in Winnipeg when he was 76. Felix de la Caridad Carveal y Soto thought he had won the 1904 marathon, and when he found out he was in fourth, he wept, but he kept racing, even returning to St. Louis the next year to finish third in the 1905 All-Western Marathon. In 1906, Athens held another Olympics. This time, Cuba was ready to support its local man. Felix was given proper clothes, expensive shoes, and a generous per diem for food and lodging. Then he was put on a steamship to Greece, first class all the way. He never showed up. When it came time for the 1906 marathon, he simply failed to appear. No one knew where he was. His obituary was printed in the Cuban papers. Then, several weeks later, a Spanish ship steamed into Havana, carrying Felix Carvajal. If he ever explained what happened, or where he'd been, it didn't get written down. He kept running, by some counts professionally, but he didn't do very well. In 1909, he took part in a highly competitive track marathon with some of the best runners in the world, including 1908 Olympic gold medalist Durando Pietri. Felix was lapped in the first mile by the entire field. He finished the race, but in last place. He died in Cuba at 73. I can't tell you about most of the other athletes who ran the 1904 marathon, the gaggle of semi-naturalized Greek Americans, for instance or William Garcia, who recovered from the dust in his esophagus after several weeks in hospital and then dropped off the map. But the absence of Len Tonyani and Jan Mashani is more conspicuous. They were the first black African Olympians ever to compete. You'd hope that someone might have kept tabs on them. A number of writers and historians have attempted to track them down with no luck. Hell, up until 1999, nobody even got their names right. 
It's safe to say that after the race, they both returned to the Boer War exhibition, which remained in St. Louis until the beginning of December. There, Len and Jan continued their work. As white men made war and made up, came to appreciate one another's dignity and courage, Len Taunyani and Jan Masciani and hundreds more black bodies stood in the background as mere backdrop. It is said that the white Americans who viewed the spectacle were quite moved. So too, though, were the black Americans of St. Louis, a group of whom decided to free the black Africans of the Boer War exhibition. The great African-American journalist and diplomat Lester Walton described the event. The Negroes had visited their untutored brethren in their huts and crawls in the Boer War camp. They learned that they were being held as prisoners. They thought that if they assisted their South African relations to escape, they would only be exemplifying the doctrine of the Emancipation Proclamation. The people of a nearby black community offered to take in the escapees, to give them food and shelter, even set them up with jobs. But within days, law enforcement had descended and recaptured the South Africans who had fled to Ferguson, Missouri. So, in all likelihood, Len and Jan traveled with the exhibition when it left St. Louis for Kansas City, then on to Chicago. Finally, the Boer War exhibition landed at Coney Island, where the show hemorrhaged money and began denying wages to its employees, black and white alike. By the end of 1905, the New York County Sheriff had shut it down and seized the goods. The Boers split up. Some of them, like General Piat Kronj, returned to South Africa to try to make a go at farming. The other Boer general from the show, Ben Vilhoen, made a deal with President Teddy Roosevelt. The Boers wanted land, and Roosevelt wanted to populate New Mexico in order to secure it for the U.S., so he helped Vilhoen establish a Boer settlement in the then depopulated town of Chamberino. The Boers there fought for Mexican President Francisco Madero Gonzalez in the Mexican Revolution in order to secure eventual American sovereignty for themselves in 1911. These Boers, naturally, didn't bring any of the black South Africans along. So Taoyani and Masciani probably either returned with Kranj to work white farms in South Africa or else were abandoned on the streets of New York by Frank Phyllis, a South African circus proprietor who was left holding the bag when the exhibition went belly up. But wherever they landed, the one thing we know for sure is that there's just no way to complete this sentence. I don't know how to end this story. It's too all over the place. It has no moral, or else too many morals. And, and I don't know which. I spent hours looking at the words, but wherever they landed, yesterday. I had to get up and walk away. I had to grab a bad night's sleep. I thought about dividing this into two episodes, just to cut back on its spastic whiplash tone shifts. But I couldn't make it fly. Lots of folks have told this story, and most of them have just chopped out the difficult bits to fit the shape they're looking for. And I don't blame them. The temptation is enormous. Is this story funny or is it upsetting? Frivolous or severe? Triumphant or tragic? It's all of that. What is this story for? What does it do? Here's what I've concluded. And yes, I'm pulling this straight out of the fire half-melted. Cut me a break. What I've concluded is that this story speaks to a specific impulse for this moment in time. If history stories present either allegory or catharsis for the present, then the story of the 1904 St. Louis Olympic Marathon is both. It allows us to scream that thought we've all been having 
every day for months now at something other than the world and our lives for once. You know the sentence I mean. The one you mutter when you look at the news, or walk outside, or look in the mirror. Well, today, we can send that energy outwards. Drive the legion demons into a herd of swine. Try it. Think of the race, of the forced dehydration, and the dust clouds, and the wild dogs, and the contaminated well water, and the hundred-degree heat, and the racism, and the hitchhiking, and the rat poison. Think of it all. Shake your head, and allow yourself to feel slightly superior for just a moment when you say, Jesus, what a fucking mess. Music for today's episode by Lee Rosevere, Kevin McLeod, Blue Dot Sessions, MS-12, and the U.S. Army Herald Trumpets. If you like the show, don't hesitate to spread the word. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or go to constantpodcast.com to find and follow our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. Or simply tell a friend. If you really want to go the extra mile, head on over to patreon.com slash theconstant and sign up to sponsor the making of this program. For just $2 an episode, you'll get access to our secret feed where I drop bonus stories, extras, and tidbits every month. We're a proud part of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-based collective of thoughtful, story-based podcasts, including The Lonely Palette, where Tamar Avishai returns art history to the masses. The latest episode is about the art of a post-war German painter and the poetry of a Holocaust survivor. And it is very special, very powerful, and you owe it to yourself to go check it out. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, which I am thankful to say has never hosted an Olympic Games, this has been The Constant. In 499, some exiles from the island of Naxos took refuge in Miletus and asked Aristic. Aristic. Oh no, what is wrong with me? <laughs> it's all broken inside my brain. <laughs> oh, are we going to put this at the end of the episode because it's so embarrassing? Probably. All right, we're back. What'd you think, Adela? I mean, I loved it. Like I said, I started listening at 1.5 and I had to go back and listen at 1.0. But um, once I kind of got into the groove, it was like, oh, yeah, like this is really interesting and like never a story that you would find out, you know, in other ways. So it sounds made up. Like yeah. it's not like it. a few of the details would have been over the top, but like the the guy that caught the carriage and rode to the end or <laughs> or like the, the hepatitis the, or whatever oh like didn't God, they start the, getting, like yes yeah unbelievable so many favorite parts um well we hope you liked it dear listener and if you did we're asking you to do two things right now uh number 1 please subscribe to the constant and then let us know that you subscribed. Um, we're going to include all the links to subscribe and the ways to get in touch with us in the show notes. So, Lauren, if they liked that episode, what do you think that they should listen to next? All right. I know I mentioned this before, but find the fool killer on the constant feed. It is this mystery for five episodes. But then it, it's interesting because I think Mark started it not sure if he would solve the mystery. And even at the 
you know, very end, he's kind of not sure and he's doing his own research. And he cracks the case in episode five. And you kind of discovered along with him. And, you know, he didn't know how the series would end, but he figures it out. And it's, I feel like it's alive or something. Like it's an alive series. So it's intense, lots of detail, lots of wackiness. But if you liked that and you want much more, search for The Fool Killer. Got it. I am definitely going to subscribe to that. And uh, Adela, do you have any recommendations if people like The Constant? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go to go to one that I think a lot of people know about, but some people don't. It's called Revisionist History with Malcolm Gladwell. It's also sort of a historical podcast. It takes an alternate view on things that we probably have heard about, though. So it's less about like unknown things, although some of them are definitely like things I've never heard of. But I'm also not a history buff. But Malcolm Gladwell just does such a great job of taking something that happened and and spinning it in an alternate way so that it tells a different story. So that would be my recommendation. And there are some really good ones from the very beginning. I would almost recommend starting at the beginning. There's one on French fries and golfing, like such a good recommendation. I think I just want to throw out one more recommendation. It's a history show, but it's totally different than this tonally, but it's history. It's called The Alarmist and it's a comedy history show. So they always have a guest on and they kind of try to figure out who's to blame for moments in history. They could be very serious things like the Trail of Tears or something funny like the woman that sued McDonald's when she got burned by coffee. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. But whether it's serious or not, it, it it feels like a history lesson. I always say I think it could be taught in schools. Like they really do a ton of research and they always have a comedian guest on to make it really funny. And I just love the beginning of the show every single time when she's introducing the show. Rebecca Delgado is the host and she says, they say history repeats itself, not on my watch. And I say (laughs) it aloud every single time. And I'm actually going to give a specific episode to recommend. It's Balloon Fest 86, Who's to Blame? Because actually I am on that episode with my podcast partner and friend Ariel Nissenblatt. So I, that's a fun one. But there's, I mean, you could start anywhere. They're great. Find a topic that that sounds good to you. That's awesome. I'm going to check that one out. So that's it from us. If you have a podcast recommendation that you are telling everybody about, go ahead and tell us about it. You can email us at feedtheq, that's Q-U-E-U-E at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us on social. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks and happy listening.